Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. All right, we're resuming our study of Mark. Looking at the episode of uh, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane today, we've come a long way in our study of Mark so far. And uh, this particular uh, section of Mark's gospel, we've, we've called this sermon series The Plot because we're looking at the plot uh, to take Jesus' life, a uh, plot which God then took and, and used to bring about our salvation. So we're in the Garden of Gethsemane, Mark chapter 14, beginning at verse 27 today. You know, sooner or later, we're all going to have an experience that resembles the experience of the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. It may not happen by torchlight. You may not be facing uh, police and soldiers carrying clubs and swords coming to arrest you. Uh, for you, it may happen in a high school classroom, as it did for a student I knew, who heard her teacher basically deride people who believe in the biblical account of creation and said that it's only something that simple-minded rednecks would believe. And then he said to the class, there's no one here that believes in that, is there? For you, it could happen as it did for an acquaintance of mine in a corporate boardroom. When the board was faced with a decision whether to cut corners in their manufacturing process in a way that would increase company profits but potentially put their customers at risk. And as a Christian, he just didn't feel he could go along with that. What do you do? For you, it could happen at a bus stop when you hear some of the moms talking about how um, you know, they know this kid who's now going with a friend to a church youth group at one of those whacked out born again type churches. And the other moms are saying, oh, well, you better watch out. They might be getting involved in a cult or something. You know, what do you do in those situations? Will you stand up and be counted? Or will you kind of sneak away and, and run for cover? Will you let it be known that you believe in the Bible and risk the ridicule of your teacher and fellow classmates? Will you speak against the rest of the board knowing that you could be committing career suicide by voting against them? Will you speak up for that church youth group and risk being known in the neighborhood as one of those whacked out born again type people? What do you do when the pressure is on? Will you take a stand for Jesus or will you kind of fall apart and run away? That's the question Mark's account of Gethsemane raises for all of us today. We're at a critical moment in Mark's gospel where Jesus has just observed the Passover with his disciples in the upper room and at that 
at that supper, he had declared that one of his disciples was going to betray him. Mark's telling of the story is meant to draw attention to the treachery of what Judas is about to do, and in fact, that then gets played out in the Garden of Gethsemane in our episode today. Now, before we look more closely at the text, I want you to note how this is put together. It's another one of Mark's sandwiches. We've, we've talked about this throughout Mark's gospel. There are about seven times when Mark does this, where he starts a story, and then he kind of suspends that story, and he tells another story, and then he comes back to the first story. So he builds a, a story sandwich, a story within another story. And in this case, uh, he begins in verses 27 through 31, where on the way to Gethsemane, Jesus predicts that his disciples are all going to fall away from him. And then in verses 32 through 42, the the meat part of the sandwich, Jesus is in prayer while the disciples sleep. And then he comes back to the original story in verses 43 through 52, where Jesus is arrested and indeed his disciples fall away. And in this way, Mark is emphasizing that Jesus faced his final hour of testing alone with his heavenly father without human support or sympathy. And there's this building sense of aloneness here, of being forsaken by even his closest of friends. Now, for Mark's readers in Rome, who many scholars believe were persecuted Christians in in, in Rome, this is perhaps the pivotal section in all of Mark's gospel because they too may have faced police bearing clubs and soldiers bearing swords coming to arrest them. They can identify with the confusion and the terror of the scene that Mark depicts here. And the question in their hearts is, how will we respond when the pressure is on? Will they stand and be counted for Jesus, or will they collapse under the pressure and run away as the disciples did? Now, Mark obviously wants us to learn from what goes on here. He wants us to see the difference between how Jesus is so prepared to face what is to come and the disciples who are so unprepared for what happens to them in the garden. In fact, implicit in this story are three warnings that I think we need to heed. Now, before we get to those warnings, I want you to see that the story begins with yet another disturbing revelation by Jesus. Look at verse 27, where our passage begins. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus is citing the prophecy of Zechariah, Zechariah 13 and verse 7, a prophecy written 500 years before the time of Christ that talks about how when the Messiah of Israel is stricken in fulfillment of God's plan, there will be a scattering of the sheep. Jesus is saying, you're about to fulfill that prophecy. They're going to strike me and you're going to scatter. You're all going to fall away on account of me. When you see what is about to happen to me, you'll desert me for fear of suffering the same treatment. But, Jesus says, after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. He immediately counters the prediction of their desertion with a promise of his resurrection and their reunion. His cowardly flock will be reunited again. His resurrection will not only defeat the powers of sin and death, but also overcome their failure and herald a chance to begin anew with him. And Peter isn't buying any of this. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Isn't this like Peter? I mean, he's always, you know, out in front. And he's basically saying, yeah, Jesus, I can can see how these other guys would fall away. 
but not me. Even if they all do, you can count on me. I will not fall away. But as a matter of fact, Jesus tells him that his failure will be even greater than that of the others. Verse 30, I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. And he can't believe it. He knows himself better than that. He knows his love for Jesus. It's never been greater. His loyalty to Jesus, his passion for serving Jesus, he's incapable of doing what Jesus suggests here. But Peter insisted emphatically, verse 31, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Yeah, what Peter said, you know, we're not going to do that. We'll be with you right to the end, Jesus. Whatever happens, we'll even die with you. The irony, of course, is that we know within a few hours they're all going to be running to save their lives. But we're fooling ourselves if we think we would have been any braver or any less boastful than Peter and his friends under the circumstances. Their response is only illustrative of our sinful human nature, and it really serves to warn us. Here's warning number one. When the pressure is on, we trust too much in ourselves. When the pressure is on, we trust too much in ourselves. I don't know about you, but I can really identify with the disciples here. I I can see the kind of bravado that Peter shows in myself all too often, that tendency to think that, you know, whatever comes my way, I'll be able to handle it. I remember when I was a freshman in college at Wheaton College, a Christian college in Illinois, uh, we had this janitor, a part-time janitor. He was a retired missionary, a uh, very distinguished-looking guy, but I can still picture him in his blue janitor jumpsuit. It was kind of a part-time job to supplement his income, and he would come in and clean our bathrooms. One day, I, I came into the bathroom as he was finishing his work, and he was about to leave, and he turned, and he said to me, hey, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. He said, if somebody were to hold a gun to your head, would you deny Jesus or would you declare that you, you love him and serve him? And I thought, well, that's pretty annoying. It's put me on the spotlight. Who does this guy think he is? I'm a freshman at Wheaton College, the Harvard of the Bible Belt, for goodness sake. What nerve does this guy have to ask me this, to question my loyalty to Jesus? And I pretty glibly said, of course I'd, I'd confess Jesus. He said, even with a gun pointed to your head? I said, yeah, sure. And he kind of looked at me and said, hmm. And he walked off. That made me even more annoyed. <laughs> and now I look back at all those years and think back at that cocky college freshman and his absolute you know, surety that he wouldn't ever deny Jesus. And I think to myself, now that I'm an old guy, hmm, hmm, really? If you were an Afghani Christian and the Taliban came knocking on your door demanding that you deny Jesus and affirm your allegiance to Allah and Muhammad, his prophet, what would you say? Well, it's unthinkable that I'd ever desert my Lord. I followed him too long. I love him too much to ever let him down that way. Peter exudes that kind of confidence here. What are you telling me, Lord? Do you think I can't take it? 
this is going to be too rough? No problem. I'll be right there at your side. You think it could be risky? I've been in tough spots with you before. You think I'll be too scared to follow? Lord, what are you so worried about? I mean, I love you. I'm 100% committed. There's not a chance in the world that I would give in to fear. I can handle this. You know, it's the vain bravado of one who's just finished basic training but hasn't yet experienced real combat. This passage should serve to warn us when the pressure is on, we trust too much in ourselves. And here's the second warning that goes right along with that. When we trust too much in ourselves, we fail to pray. When the pressure is on, we trust too much in ourselves, and when we trust too much in ourselves, we fail to pray. Jesus knows what they need here. He knows what they're going to be going through. And Jesus knows that their best preparation for what they're about to face is going to be to pray. And he knew that's what he needed. I mean, if he needed it, how much more do we, right? Jesus knew that his men would also be well served to pray, and so he takes them to the garden. Verse 32, they they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Take note there of how deeply distressed Jesus is by this. He's in extreme anguish. The prospect of what awaits him is horrifying. But note how determined he is to take that whole overwhelming burden to his father in prayer. He knows that's what he has to do. And he takes Peter, James, and John, the privileged three, right? Those were the three in his inner circle, the three that he took with him into Jairus' home when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, the three he took up the Mount of Transfiguration with him when the voice spoke from heaven, this is my beloved son, listen to him. He takes these three. Why? Well, I think in part because they were most emphatic in their expressions of their ability to suffer with Jesus, right? Peter has just said, even if all fall away. I will not. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And it was James and John who not long before this had asked Jesus, can we have the right hand and the left hand thrones in your kingdom when you come in your glory? In other words, can we have the two best positions of influence and power in your kingdom? And Jesus said, well, it's not mine to give, but answer me this. Are you able to drink the cup I drink, the cup of suffering, or to be baptized with the baptism that with which I'm baptized, and, and they're like, oh yeah, sure, no problem, no problem. They had said they could take it. Well, now they need to witness Jesus' agony. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. You know, we could spend a whole sermon just on this one verse, Jesus' prayer, how he addresses the Father with an intimacy that many would have thought inappropriate. Daddy, Father, you know, expressing how sure he is of his Father's nearness and care. He expresses confidence in his Father's ability to do all things, and he makes his request, take this cup. The cup represents, in this case, a cup of suffering, He's got to drink it all down, the cup of God's wrath against the sin of mankind. He asked to be relieved from the hideous responsibility of bearing our sin and suffering all that wrath. Yet, 
he submits himself to the will of God. Yet not what I will, but what you will. I love a story that a guy named Tim White tells about his son Ryan. He said in the first 15 years of Ryan's life, he had to have 30 surgeries in the first 15 years. And so this business of going for surgery became kind of routine. On one occasion when Ryan was about eight years old, they, the staff had given Ryan the purple, they called it the purple Barney juice, which kind of started to make him, you know, settle down. It was a, a sedative in preparation for the anesthesia was, that was to come. They put Ryan on the gurney and they wheeled him down that long hallway as they were accustomed to going right up to the doors of the operating suite with Ryan to assure him that it was all going to be okay. And then when the doors would open, they would take him inside and, and they'd have to leave Ryan at that point. Well, on this particular occasion, as they wheeled Ryan down the hall and, and Tim was right there at his son's side, the, the doors opened to the surgical suite and Ryan sat straight up in his bed, looked his dad square in the eye and said, Daddy, don't let them take me. Tim White says, at that moment, my heart was broken. I would have done anything to take him off that bed except for the fact that he had to have that surgery. That knowledge didn't ease the pain of my heart at all. I just stood there trembling as the doors closed and he disappeared and then I broke into tears. Shortly after, when I was asking God how such a good love could hurt so much, I realized he'd gone through the same thing in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus prayed, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Translated into the language of a child, Daddy, don't let them take me. And so Tim White says, I allowed the surgeons to take my son for his own good. God allowed the crucifiers to take his son for our good. That's how much our God loves us. Amen. You know, clearly one of the things Jesus' prayer shows us is not only the depth of the Father's love for us, but the depth of his own love for us, that knowing what is about to come, he submits to the Father's will, that the Father and the Son together are willing to give so much for our salvation. But Jesus' prayer accomplishes something else as well. It gives Mark's readers a way to pray in the face of the trials that threaten to overwhelm them. By looking at Jesus' prayer here in verse 36, they know that they need not shy away from crying out to God to be spared from suffering. At the same time, they learn that Jesus put God's will ahead of what they want, what he wanted. And so we learn from Jesus' prayer to entrust ourselves into the Father's care and to submit to the Father's will. But unfortunately, all this apparently was lost that night on the disciples who were supposed to be praying with him in the garden. Because while Jesus prepares himself for what is coming by spending time with his Father in prayer, the disciples figure they need something more than that. Uh, Something more important than praying to them was to get some sleep. Look at verse 37. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. It's interesting that Mark only gives really one verse 
to Jesus' prayer. He spends many more verses talking about the disciples' failure to pray. It's obvious here that Jesus just doesn't want Peter and the others to stay awake. He wants them to pray. He's not asking them to pray for him. He's asking them to pray for themselves. They should be acknowledging how dependent they are on God in the face of what awaits them, that God would keep them from succumbing to temptation. No matter how strong your resolve might be now, Jesus says, your flesh is weak. Jesus knows how easily in our humanness we can be overwhelmed, and so he urges us to pray. Look at verse 39. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Verse 40, when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. They're embarrassed that the Lord found them again asleep on the job, but they don't know what more to say to him. They obviously don't feel the urgency of the situation as keenly as Jesus does. These self-confident men are so sure they'll pass the test. In their minds, they need sleep more than they need to pray. Verse 41, returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough already, enough. Three times, Jesus urges them to pray. Three times, they fall asleep instead, perhaps foreshadowing the three denials of Peter that are still to come. Jesus goes on to say, the hour has come. No more time for praying or sleeping. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. It's like Jesus just takes charge and says, all right, let's face this. Let's roll. For Mark's readers in Rome who needed strength, for the trial that they themselves were facing, Jesus' example of calm dignity must have been a great encouragement. And surely Mark means for us to contrast how Jesus handles the crisis with how his disciples respond. When the time for going comes, only prayer enables one to answer the call. The disciples slept instead. And so when they rise, look what happens. Remember I said there were three warnings in this passage? The first, when the pressure is on, we trust too much in ourselves. Second, when we trust too much in ourselves, we fail to pray. And the third, when we fail to pray, we fall away. When we fail to pray, we fall away. Look at verse 43, where it says, just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the 12 appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and teachers of the law and elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Jesus takes command of the situation at that point. Verse 48, am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. So there's a scene of confusion and swords and clubs, uh, a betrayer's kiss, 
a little bit of sword play. Jesus takes charge and protests that all their show of force is unnecessary. He calls them out for their cowardice and, and not arresting him in broad daylight when they had the opportunity. He makes it clear that he has no intention of resisting their arrest. He's going to go along with them because it's all part of the Father's plan. And look what happens to the brave disciples. Verse 50, then everyone deserted him and fled. Everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. And when they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. A lot of commentators believe that this was Mark himself. That it was likely the home of Mark's parents where the Last Supper had been held. And that Mark, kind of a bystander observing all the proceedings, had followed Jesus and his disciples out there to the garden. And so when the soldiers grab him, they catch him by his linen garment, which was an expensive piece of clothing. Mark's parents were probably well off. And he slips out of that garment and runs home, all the way home, naked. Somebody has said their mad dash to safety exposes the nakedness of their empty pledges. And if we're not careful, our pledges of loyalty to Jesus can turn up just as empty when I keep my mouth shut in class instead of admitting that I believe the Bible. When I violate my conscience and vote with the rest of the board so as not to jeopardize my career. When I walk away from the bus stop without letting a soul know that I go to one of those churches where people talk about being born again, or when the gun is pointed at my head and to save my skin, I deny being a follower of Jesus. You know, for all their brave talk, Jesus knew there was only one thing that could keep his disciples from caving in under the pressure they would experience there in the garden. He said, watch and pray so that you not fall into temptation. As the Chinese general Sun Xu put it in his epic work, The Art of War, every battle is won or lost before it is fought. And Jesus' disciples lose this battle before it was ever fought by neglecting to pray with Jesus. The simple bottom line of this whole passage, I think, for us is to say, when the pressure is on, pray. When you know you're going to be facing pressure, make sure you're prayed up. Prayer is our best preparation for those times when it's tough to stand and be counted for Christ. If we don't watch and pray, chances are we'll fall apart and run away. Jesus shows us how to pray when the pressure is the greatest. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Whatever threatens me as a follower of Jesus, I can withstand not by finding in myself to be brave and loyal, but by depending on a loving Father to see me through. And the surest way to keep the courage of your convictions is to watch and pray. One who is often in God's presence won't likely fall away when the pressure is on. One place where we can be sure that Christians under pressure are praying these days 
is in Afghanistan. And we need to be praying with them. There was a report put out by CBN News at the end of August that said, at a safe house in Kabul, Yahudin, not his real name, has been hiding along with 12 other Afghans since the Taliban seized control of the city. One of us is always awake during the night, always walking around and praying. Keep watch and pray, Jesus said, that you not fall into temptation. That's what they're doing. Somebody's always awake, walking and praying. So if the Taliban should come and knock on our door, we should alert everyone, Yahudin told CBN News. We had many plans for preaching the gospel with other brothers and sisters, but then the Taliban took control so quickly. It happened so fast, said Sarah, an Afghan Christian leader. And now they've been marked by the Taliban. Every day, I receive a phone call from a private number, and the person, a Taliban soldier, warns me that if he sees me again, he'll behead me. While Yahudin says he's not afraid of dying, He's asking the world to pray for his country. We are praying for each other that the Lord would put his angels around our house for our protection and safety, said Yahudin. We are also praying for the peace, for peace for everyone in our country. I would imagine that in the near future we're gonna start to hear stories coming out of Afghanistan about those faithful Christians who've been left behind. And we want won't be surprised, will we, if some under threats and pressure renounce Jesus. But I expect there will be many inspiring stories of God's protection of believers in answer to their prayers. And very likely there will be stories of other believers witnessing to their Taliban executioners even as they give their lives for Jesus. And the difference between those who fall away and those who stand strong will likely have to do with their Preparation in prayer. Praying brothers and sisters in Christ in Afghanistan are likely already finding that they can withstand anything the Taliban can dish out. And we may not face that kind of pressure. But we will face pressures. Pressures to deny Christ in our everyday lives. When the pressure is on us, maybe we too should pray. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we come before you today, indeed, on behalf of our brothers and sisters in Christ in Afghanistan. And we pray for their protection. We pray that in those places where they're in hiding from their persecutors, that you would put your hedge of protection, that your angels of protection would, would encircle those homes and provide your miraculous protection. But Lord, there are others who may face martyrdom. And we pray that even in that most pressurized of situations, that you, by your spirit, would hold them fast in your loving arms and allow them to boldly proclaim their faith in Christ even as they give their lives. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters 
in that difficult situation, asking that you would provide in marvelous ways for them and care for them and protect them and prepare them and keep them from falling. And Lord, we pray for ourselves. We don't face nearly that kind of pressure in our daily lives, but we do face pressure. People people who might ridicule us for our faith or people who, who would discriminate against us because of our faith, all, all different subtle ways, every, every week, all week long, where we might be called upon to pay a price for standing with Jesus. Lord, right here, right now, we come before you in prayer and we pray, keep us from falling into temptation. The spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. And so we need you, Lord God, by your spirit to sustain us and make us strong, to help us take a stand for Jesus every opportunity we get, that we may bring him honor and glory. And it's in his name that we pray, amen.